First John chapter 4, verse 1. If you would read along with me, this is the word of God. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which, is, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for your word that, that reveals truth to us, Lord, reveals truth about you, reveals truth about us, reveals truths that are beyond us, Lord. It is humbling to know that the God of the universe has spoken to us personally in your word. God, I pray that we're discerning, Lord, as a church, that we discern what your word truly says and that you protect us from error, Lord. Protect us from any teaching that would go against your word or that would be um, outside of your word, Lord. I pray that we're faithful to your word, and I pray for the spirit of truth, Lord, as a church to dwell with us, Lord, and that you protect us from the spirit of error. Be with us this morning, in your son's name, amen. You know how uh, Mike Owens likes to give um, little nuggets, parenting tips, I would like to share one of my main parenting goals as a father. One of my main parenting goals as a father is this. Keep my kids alive. <laughs> if, if you think I'm joking, you're either not a parent of a toddler or you forgot. <laughs> I mean, just think about how much time and energy you spend keeping your child alive. Hand-holding in the parking lot, locking cabinets so they won't drink poisonous things, covers over outlet because you know they're going to grab a key and try to put it in there, fences around swimming pool. Why do we spend so much time and energy and money even trying to keep our children alive? Well, one of the reasons is for sure we love them, right? But the other reason is this. They lack discernment. They lack discernment. They lack the ability to know that something is dangerous. Let me give you a quick example of this. I try not to use my family as illustrations too often, but this is just kind of funny. So, um, We're going to do swimming lessons this summer for Autumn because she thinks she can swim. We go to the pool a lot, and she wears floaties, and she is not afraid of the water whatsoever. She'll dive right into the deep end with her floaties and, and swim all day. And she, she has no fear of the water, and she hasn't discerned yet that without the floaties, she can't swim. I've actually tried to teach her this and show her this by putting her in the water without floaties and being right there and letting her you know, feel what it's like to sink and not swim. And, and we did that, and she just sank. 
You know, I pull her out of the water, and she's like freaking out. And then she looks at me, and she says, I swam. (laughs) No, Autumn, you sank. (laughs) Children lack discernment. That's because children aren't born with a discerning heart, right? We learn discernment. We learn what's dangerous and, and what's safe. And if you don't, right, if a child doesn't learn discernment, eventually it's going to destroy them. It's going to destroy them. Listen, the same is true with the church. If a church, and I'm talking about a local body, a local church, Country Oaks, if a church doesn't learn discernment, it will lead to destruction. It will lead to destruction. Therefore, we as a church, we, we have to have discerning ears. Right, John Piper, I like this. He calls it a, a theological nose. It might be because I just have a big nose, but, but he calls it a, a theological nose where, where, where someone can sniff out when something just sounds off. Right? Hearing a teaching and, 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 and it just sounds off. Like it just, there's something about it that's off, having a theological nose. It's actually one of the goals when I was working with the youth was to help build the, the youth's theological noses so that when they would hear teachings that were false, they'd be like, that just doesn't sound right. Side note, and, and I just want to be clear on this, this is one of the main reasons we really encourage children, especially children, teenagers, to sit through the sermon Sunday morning. And you've heard Mike Owen say that, hey, we, we love children being in here. For all the distractions that may cause, we're good with that. We want them in here. You know why? It helps build theological noses. Right? Hearing sermons every Sunday helps build theological discernment. And, and I say this because of my testimony. I grew up in, in this church, and, and I didn't go to Sunday school very often. And the reason I didn't go to Sunday school is because I, I, I couldn't read. Like, I was terrified that they were going to call on me and make me read in front of everyone. And so I didn't want to be embarrassed. So I said, Mom, I'm just going to go with you. Dad, I'm just going to go with you and sit through the sermon. I came here when I was age 9, and I sat through sermons until age 18 and left for college. That's nine years' worth of sitting under Pastor Andy hearing solid expositional preaching every Sunday. You know what that did? It built a theological nose. It built a discerning ear. And I want to be clear, my heart was not in the right place through that whole entire time. But I remember I went to college, and I went to a Bible college, um, not because I was planning on being a pastor, ironically, um, just to play basketball. They, they offered me to come play basketball for the school, and that's why I went there. And I'd sit through Bible classes, and, and this school that I went to wasn't the most sound theological school. I remember sitting through Bible classes just being like, that just sounds off. There's something about that teaching that's just not right. You know what that was? I believe it was the start of a discerning heart. Biblical discernment. It was sensing something was off when, when, when hearing a sermon or teaching or a song or reading a book or a movie But biblical discernment is this. It's sensing that and then being able to figure out biblically why it's off. Here's the ironic thing I I believe about today's church. And this is just from my experience kind of just interacting with Christians. I believe the average Christians, most Christians, don't have this ability. 
right, to sense something's off and then, and then figure out exactly why it's off. I, I believe most Christians don't have this ability, yet most Christians think they do. I believe the average Christian in our culture, listen to this, doesn't have the humility to discern that they lack the knowledge to be discerning. Let me say that again. Doesn't have the humility to discern that they lack the knowledge to be discerning. It's like Autumn, right? Confident she can swim when she can't. Today's passage is uh, largely about discernment. And there's two things I really want you to see this morning as we go through this passage. The first one is this, the importance of discernment. The importance of discernment when it comes to teaching, when it comes to music, when it comes to books, when it comes to movies, and so on. The second thing I really want you to see in this passage is the importance of doctrine. The importance of doctrine. And you've heard me say this time and time again, that our culture sees doctrine and theology as not important. If anything, those terms are kind of negative terms. I really believe that comes from a postmodern influence, a secular cultural philosophy influence of the church and not from the Bible at all. Because the Bible says the opposite. The Bible makes much of doctrine, as we'll see today in this passage. You may hear people say something like, we really need to lay down our doctrine and theology and just love. Because doctrine divides. Listen, doctrine does divide. And sometimes we need it to divide. I, I say that phrase very, very carefully. Sometimes... Not always. Sometimes we need it to divide. Think about this. First John, right? The epistle of love, the apostle of love. The only place we see the phrase, God is love. What is First John doing? This epistle. It's dividing. Right? The whole epistle. John is saying there's false teachers and there's true teachers. Right? Look at verse 6 in our passage this morning. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. That's dividing. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Either you're inspired by the spirit of truth or inspired by the spirit of error, in other words. And they're not on the same team. Right, John, uh, out of all the apostles, is very black and white. He's dividing people into two groups throughout the whole epistle. Either you are in the light or in the darkness. Either you're spiritually alive or spiritually dead. Either you're of this world or you're not of this world. Either you're a child of God or you're not a child of God. Right? And in this passage, John divides those that speak from the spirit of truth from those that speak from the spirit of error. Doctrine does divide. I'll be the first to admit that, and sometimes that's a good thing. Because there's some doctrines, again, that word some, there's some doctrines that are worth dividing over. Look at 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. I want to take a little side track here. I'm going to get side. I'm going to purposely get sidetracked here uh, before we get to the main points of this sermon, because I think it's important that I clarify something in this passage. This passage has been abused by Christian mystics, people with an unhealthy. What's a Christian mystic? It's people that have unhealthy obsession with the spiritual realm. Right? There's two mistakes that Christians make when it comes to Satan and, and the demonic realm. One is to ignore them and pretend like they don't exist. The other is to be obsessed by them. Right? You know what's crazy is the Bible finds this, like, this perfect, perfect balance between those two things. Right? The Bible's clear that there's a spiritual realm around us and, and a war going on around us. At the same time, it's very vague about it. And we're called to really just trust God through it. <laughs> And it's a perfect balance. I want to be clear before I even get into this passage. This passage has nothing, nothing to do with demon possession. It has nothing to do with demon possession. If you know just a little bit of the context of 1 John, and we've been in 1 John long enough where I hope we know the context of 1 John. It's obvious this is about false teaching. You might be, why are you taking such a sidetrack? This has nothing to do with demon possession. Why are you spending so much time on it? Because this passage is abused by people. It's not about demon deli- deliverance. I recently was called with a number of pastors, actually, to pray for a person that claimed to be demon-possessed. One of the pastors that was with us started asking the person if Jesus came in the flesh. And it really confused me. I was sitting there, and I'm kind of young. I'm like, well, maybe it's, I'm missing something here. Confused me. But then he started reading 1 John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. And then 1 John 4, 2, which says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. Listen, this pastor was completely misinterpreting this passage. This passage has nothing to do with demon possession and John makes that very clear right in the passage. Look at, look at 1 John 4, verse 1 again. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This passage is about false teaching and false prophets and false teachers. Listen, I want to be clear because the Bible is so clear on this. Demons know who Jesus is. Right? They know who Jesus is. They know he came in the flesh. They know their Christology, which is a fancy word for the doctrines and theology surrounding Jesus. Mark 1, 24, chapter 1, verse 24 says this, and this is a demon speaking. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Right, this is a point in Jesus' ministry where no one knew who he was. The Jewish people had no idea. The religious leaders had no idea. Not even the disciples knew who Jesus was. You know who knew? The demons. Matthew 8, 29 says this, And behold, they cried out, that they is the the demons, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They called him Son of God. 
No one at this point would have called Jesus son of God. But you know who did? The demons. They know who Jesus is. That's why James 2.19 says this. You believe that God is one, you do well. In other words, you have good theology, good job. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's not that the demons don't know who Jesus is or that he came in the flesh or that he's the God-man. It's not that the demons don't know their theology. Demons hate Jesus. And they hate us. And in that hatred, they want to deceive us. And that makes sense because they're followers of Satan. And this is what it says about Satan in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you will, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks from his own character. That's who Satan is. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is the great deceiver. He's the great liar. He's the father of lies. That's what this passage is about, right, in 1 John. 1 John 4, 1, listen to what it says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, right? John is telling the church to be discerning about doctrine. (laughs) Be discerning. Have discerning ears. And John does this by talking about three different people. Three different people, and that's going to be our points this morning. The, the they is one group of people. The you is another group of people. And the us is the third group of people. The they, that's the false prophets. The you, which is the church that John is talking to. And, and us um, are the true teachers. The true teachers. So our three points, the they, the you, and the us. So let's start with the they, those that are, are false prophets. Look at 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know what's confusing about this verse, actually, and why this gets so abused, this passage, is the word spirits right? If it said teacher, false teacher, false prophets, like don't, don't believe every false teacher, don't believe every false prophet, then we wouldn't get confused about this passage. So, so the question we should ask is, why does John call these false teachings and false teachers and false prophets spirits? Well, there's a simple answer. All false teaching and all false prophecy is demonic is demonic. And the Bible is actually really clear in this. Satan's strategy is not to oppose the church. Satan's strategy is to deceive the church. Right? I mean, think about the garden. Satan was a snake. He could have come and just started striking at Eve. He doesn't do that. He befriends Eve. Right? He, he sticks close to the truth and then puts a heresy in there right, that, that pulls her away from God and trusting God. He's a deceiver. 
He uses false teachers and false prophets. This is what 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says. And no wonder, for even S- Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In other words, Satan disguises himself being on our team. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They're trying to deceive. Matthew seven fifteen says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they, they, they pretend like they're on our team. They pretend like they're Christians. But inwardly are ravages of wolves. Or 2 Peter 2.1 says this, but false prophets also arise, arose among the people, just as they will be false teachers among you. Do you hear that? It's a promise. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly secretly bring in destructive heresies. Satan is trying to deceive. And he uses false teachers and false prophets who are demonically inspired. 1 Timothy 4.1 says this. Now the Spirit um, expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Corinthians, or Colossians 2.8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty, of, and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits, that's demons, of the world, and not according to Christ. The Bible really says two things about false teaching. The first is this. It's from Satan who's trying to deceive. And let me just be clear so we can humble ourselves, including me. It's not going to be easy to spot. Satan's pretty smart. He's trying to deceive us. So we need to be discerning and humbly understand. Humbly check the scriptures to everything that, that we go to. The first one is this. Again, it's from Satan. He's trying to deceive. The second one is, the second um, Bible says, the, the second thing the Bible says about false teaching, that it's demonically inspired. So how can we be discerning as a church? Well, let's look at verse 2 again. Verse 2 in chapter 4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. This passage should sound pretty familiar to us because John is repeating himself. Remember, John speaks in a circle. He comes back to the same topics over and over and over again in 1 John. So turn with me back to 1 John 2, verse 22. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 says this. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. We've talked about this passage before. We've gone over this. One of the quickest ways to exposing a false teacher is looking at his Christology. 
Right? Again, Christology, that's a fancy word for the doctrine surrounding Christ or, or the theology surrounding Christ, or just, just simply what the Bible says about Jesus. I mean, think about this. All cults, all false religions have a heretical view of Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, liberal theologians or theology, mainline Protestants, secularism, Islam, Jews, they all deny the deity of Christ. Therefore, one of the quickest ways you can tell if a teacher is heretical is by their beliefs surrounding one question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is the liar? This is what John says. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is what John MacArthur says. Any denial or deviation or distortion of the, the scriptural view of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, that he is both son of God and son of man, the promised prophet, priest, king, and redeemer, any denial of any one of these truths consists of the spirit of the Antichrist. Look at what 1 John 4, 2 says. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. That word confess is actually an interesting word in the Greek. It's homologeo. Homologeo. Homo means same. Okay, it's two words put together. Homo means same, and logeo means to speak. So when you put these two words together, it, it, it literally means to say the same thing or to speak the same thing. Confesses means to speak the same thing. Well, to speak the same thing of what? About Jesus, right? Every spirit that confesses or says the same thing about Jesus, the same thing the Bible says about Jesus, is from God. And what's the Bible say about Jesus? Well, look what it says, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Remember the context of the book of 1 John, right? Who's John fighting against? The Gnostics. The Gnostics were, was this heresy, this Gnostic heresy, that, that believed the physical world was evil. And for us, we're kind of on the opposite end. That sounds so weird, but in the Greek culture in that day and age, that was a very common belief, that the physical world is evil, and the spiritual world, right, the supernatural world is the real world. Therefore, these, these Gnostics that claimed to be followers of Jesus said Jesus couldn't be physical. There's no way he could be physical. And that's what John is fighting against, right? It's interesting that, that later Gnostics, if you follow the Gnostic heresy, we have a lot of writings from the Gnostics, um, but they're hundreds of years after John was fighting against them. What we mostly know what John was fighting against through 1 John. But later Gnostics believe something very interesting. Right? They believe that Jesus was actually physical and a man, but the Christ, which is, is separate than Jesus, was a spiritual being that came upon Jesus at baptism, and left Jesus before the cross. So listen to what John says. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is actually a very theologically rich statement here. There's two things that, that this tells us about Jesus. First, Jesus wasn't just born, he came. Why is that important? It means that Jesus was pre-existing. He, wasn't, he, was, he didn't come into existence at his birth. Right? It says he, he came. 
The second thing that uh, this statement tells us is, and, and I kind of want to be careful here because I'm treading on holy ground here. These, these, are, these are mysteries that are beyond us, right? And so I want to be humble when I say this, but, but it doesn't say Jesus came in the flesh. Look what it says. It says Jesus has come in the flesh. Interesting. Many theologians believe that Jesus Christ not only came in the flesh, but will continue in the flesh forever in a glorified body. Fully human, fully God, forever. And think about that for a second. This completely contradicts the Gnostics' philosophy. This is what John Stott wrote about this. The perfect tense in Greek, right, has come, not came. The perfect tense in, in Greek to, uh, seems to emphasize that the flesh assumed by the Son of God in the incarnation has become his permanent possession wow, like Jesus came to live with us, to die on the cross, and will be fully human and fully, fully God for eternity. Far from coming upon Jesus at the baptism and leaving him before the cross, the Christ actually came in the flesh and has never laid it aside. The fundamental Christian doctrine, which can never be compromised, is the divine human person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, to simplify that, doctrine is important. Doctrine is important. And the doctrine surrounding the incarnation of Jesus is extremely important. Look at verse 2 again. And every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, confessing the correct doctrine about Christ is a sign, okay, is a sign that you are from God. That you are truly saved. Okay? It's a sign. It doesn't mean you're saved, but it's a sign that you're saved. So this means that my, my second point this morning, and that's the you. The you, which is the church. We look at verse 4. Little children, right? Who's that? The church, right? First John, uh, John calls this congregation that he's writing this letter to little children over and over and over again, right? The church, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Right? You, you are from God. The church. Now, he's talking to those that are truly saved in the church, those that are, that are truly in the light, those that, that are not of this world, those that have been born again are from God. You are from God and have overcome them. Who has the church overcome? Right, who's the them? Well, that's the first point, the they, the them. Right? These demonically inspired false teaching and false teachers. You have overcome them. John's encouraging the church. How have they overcome them? Well, simply, they haven't fallen away. Think about that. They may have questioned their salvation because of these false teachings. They may have struggled with assurance. They may have had doubts even. But they didn't fall away. And that is a sign of true salvation. Right? John's already said that in 1 John 
2.19, he says this, they went out from us, that's the false teaching teachers and all those that have followed them. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. It's a sign of salvation. Look at 1 John 4, 4 again. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. You didn't fall away. Sign that you're truly saved. Again, a sign. Why haven't they fallen away? Well, look what it says in the second part of verse 4. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is what one commentator said about this. All true Christians possess a, an incorruptible seed of eternal life. That's 1 Peter 1, 23-25. Meaning that no satanic deception can take them out of God's saving hand. Those truly born again have been given not only a supernatural insight into the truth, but a love for it. As well as a discernment that protects them from apostasy. Listen, false teaching may, may cause you to question your salvation. False teaching may cause you to fall into sin even. But if you are truly saved, the Holy Spirit living within you will never let you completely fall away. Look at verse 5. They, right, again, that's the false teachers and, and their followers, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak um, from the world, and the world listens to them. 1 John 2.19 says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. They were of the world. Those that fell away, they never truly belonged to God. They really belonged to the world. So that's the you. This leads me to the third point this morning. That's the us. The us. Look at verse 6. It says this, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Verse 6 again, it says, We are from God. And so here's the question. Who are the we? Right, we've asked this question before. Right? And, and the question that followed it, and this is, comes from just chapter 1, who are the we? It, when, when John says we are from God, is this an inclusive we or an exclusive we? What do I mean by that? Is John, when he says we, does he, is he saying we, meaning me, John, I'm not John, but pretend I'm John, me and you guys, we. Does he mean that? That's an inclusive we. Or does he mean we, me and a group of people, and not you, exclusively? You with me? It's exclusive. Because look at verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God, who's that? Well, that's the church. That's those that are saved. Whoever knows God listens to us. There's a distinction here, right? Verse 6, when he says we and us, he's talking about the apostles. He's saying us, we, right? The church listens to us. Again, I don't want to point to myself because I'm not John or an apostle. But that's what John's saying. He's comparing the false teachers. Look at verse 5. They are from the world with apostolic teaching, his teaching, inspired by God. Verse 6, we are from God. You see that? And I want to be clear, this is a bold proclamation. This is a bold proclamation. If you ever wondered, because I've wondered this, 
Have you ever wondered if the apostles knew they were inspired by God? If you have ever wondered if they knew they were speaking and writing authoritatively, in other words, they're writing and speaking scripture, meaning their words are equal to God's words? Look what verse 6 says. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Can you imagine if I said something like that? I, am, I can't even say it. <laughs> I'm going to, but just going to make a point. If I came up here and said something like, I am from God, and whoever listens to me knows God. You'd probably be stepping away from me because lightning's going to strike, right? Be clear, I speak authoritatively, but I speak by teaching this. Because this is the authority, not me. Just on a side note, too, and, and it's not my notes, but, but I've had people question why we're, the title uh, for the pastorate... Oh, man, I lost my spot. That's not good. Um, it's teaching pastor and not senior pastor. And I'm the one that's been pushing that. And I, I don't, I'm not against someone being called a senior pastor. That's not the point. I just want to be clear that my authority comes from this. I'm teaching this. It doesn't come from me. That's why I want the title to be Teaching Pastor. There is an authority when you get up here and preach, but it's not because I'm special in any sort of way. It's because I'm teaching this. I just want to make that clear. And, and just so you know, I'm the one that pushed for that. If you have questions about that, come talk with me. Please. I think I found my spot. Lightning striking me, that's where I was at. John Stott says this about this statement, right? Paul, or John, what John says here, he says this, this statement sounds the heights of arrogancy. So it would be uttered by any individual Christian. No private believer could presume to say, whoever knows God agrees with me. Only those who are not of God disagree with me. But this was not, or this is what John says. The fact that he is not speaking in his own name, nor even in the name of the church, but as one of the apostles who were aware of their special authority bestowed upon them by Jesus Christ. John knew he was speaking authoritatively. And a side note here, John gives us actually another sign of salvation. Whoever knows God, right, whoever is saved, in other words, whoever knows God listens to us. Those that are truly saved, in other words, listens to the voice of the apostles. Because it's God's voice. And God's elect, God's, God's people listen to God's voice. Turn with me to John 10, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. This is a great... And if you go home tonight, read all of chapter 10. I'd go through the whole entire thing, but I have six minutes. I just want to show you a couple verses in this passage. John chapter 10, verse, verse 4. Let's start there.
It says this in verse 4. When he was brought out, um, or when he has brought out all his own, he goes out before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. God's people know his voice. They know Jesus' voice. They know God's voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. Look at verse 7 now. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. Because those that are truly saved, those are the sheep will follow the shepherd, and they'll listen to the voice of the shepherd. Look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also. In other words, there's sheep out there that we need to share the gospel with that are going to be brought in. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. You know, my calling as a pastor under-shepherd, as an elder. It's actually very simple. It's not easy, but simple. It's to preach God's word. It's to teach God's word. It's to counsel God's word. It's to lead the church by God's word. And those that are his sheep will come and listen. That's it. So that's the they, the false teachers, the you, the church, and the us, the apostles. I actually want to end the sermon today with four application points in this passage. Four application points. And I think I could do them a minute and a half a piece. We might be a little late. That's your fault. You guys spent too much time fellowshipping. (laughs) Took time away from my sermon. I'll get through these quickly. The first point is this. Doctrine is important. Simple. Right? John's given us three tests over and over, three signs of salvation over and over again. A a love for obedience, a a love for the brethren, and a correct Christology. (laughs) A correct doctrine about Christ. Doctrine is important. John's making that clear. The epistle of love, the apostle of love, doctrine's important. Love's important too, right? A love for brothers, a love for, for obedience. Okay, second application point. It's this. Discernment's important. Discernment's important. We need discerning ears. We need theological noses that can sniff out false teaching. You know one of the best ways of doing that? Let me ask you this question. Who's the best person to spot counterfeit money. First service, I heard it. I'm sure someone said it. A bank teller. Why? 
because they're handling real money all day. When they come across a counterfeit, they're like, doesn't feel right. Wait, something's off. That's the same with teaching. If you sit under good teaching, you listen to good teaching long enough, false teaching just won't sound right. Third application point is this. And this is something that's so hard for us as an individualistic culture. Discernment is a corporate endeavor. Discernment is a corporate endeavor. Let me go back to the second point, the you. It's so unfortunate, the the English language. Look at at verse 2. By this you, that's where I get you from. By this you, he's talking to the the church. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come uh, come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In other words, by this you, you need to be discerning. Jesus is not, or Paul is not... Man, who is speaking here? John is not, sorry, John is not talking to you individualistically. He's talking to you corporately. The you in in Greek is plural. It's unfortunate the English language, because we're such an individualistic society already, it's unfortunate that the English language doesn't have a second person personal pronoun. Plural pronoun. Gosh, there's a lot of peace. Second, personal, plural pronoun. That's it. I think Texans have something right here. Y'all. <laughs> Verse 2. By this, y'all. Right? Y'all know the spirit of truth. Spirit of God. Listen, this, 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 this passage is calling us as a church body corporately, together, to be discerning. We need each other, in other words. Because I need you. If I say something off, I want you to come tell me. We need to study together. And don't get me wrong, we need discerning individually, too, but this is calling us as a church to study together and be discerning together. We need to be like the Bereans, Right? Acts 17.11, which says this, Now these Jews, that's the Bereans, were, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily together to see if these sayings were so. We're such an individualistic culture, and that's crept into the church, that you is not talking about you, it's talking about us, all of us. We do this together. The fourth and the last application point is this. The Spirit and the Word work together. The Spirit and the Word work together. Didn't Jim do a good job last week? You did an excellent job. We're blessed to have elders that can get up here and preach God's Word and handle God's Word well. Listen, true worship is worshiping in spirit and truth in spirit and truth. When our spirit is connected to the Holy Spirit and is, and is unified in truth, that's genuine worship. Think about this. Who's the author of Scripture? It's a tricky question, actually, but who's the ultimate author of Scripture? God. Who's the ultimate author of Scripture in the Godhead? The Holy Spirit. 
what Douglas O'Donnell says, commentary on this passage right here, he says this, we are not missing some spirit-filled experience when we only read and teach the Bible. This is worship. There is not a time for the spirit singing and praying and then a time for the word preaching. To be led by the spirit in corporate worship or private devotion is to be led back to the inspired apostolic testimony Look at verse 6. We, that's the apostles, are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, the apostles. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, you know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Look at verse 2. By this, you know the spirit of God. That's a capital S, the Holy Spirit. Every spirit, right, that's a lowercase s, that's us. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Remember that word confess. Remember the interesting word is homo legeo. Homo meaning same and legeo meaning to speak, to say the same thing. So verse 2 could be translated, every spirit that says the same thing about Jesus. The same thing as what? The Bible, right? Well, who's the author of the Bible? The Holy Spirit. Listen, when we speak, when we preach, when we teach, when we pray, when we sing Scripture, we are speaking, we are preaching, we are teaching, we are praying, we are singing the words of the Holy Spirit. And here's the amazing thing about that. The Holy Spirit always points to Christ. There's this emphasis of really like, highlighting the Holy Spirit and making much of the Holy Spirit, which I'm not against. But you want to honor the Holy Spirit? Listen to what it says in verse 2. By this we know the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, you want to honor the Holy Spirit? Confess Jesus. Make much of Jesus. Because that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, it is humbling to be up here, Lord. God, we are talking about realities that are so far beyond any of us, Lord. You read your word and there's these, these, these truths that are, are so far beyond us, Lord. This idea of this infinite God that would reveal anything to us is amazing, and the fact that he's revealed so much about himself to us, Lord, is humbling. God, help us to take teaching Scripture, the Word, seriously, Lord. I pray that we are a church that is discerning, that we're humble enough to realize that Satan is smarter than us, Lord, that we need to continuously go back to your Word and check every teaching, Lord, every book, every movie, every song, Lord, with your word. And when you knew that corporately, too, we need to be humble enough to ask each other for help. Humble enough to, to, to look at Scripture with our brothers and sisters together. God, I pray that that's true about our church, Lord. Thank you for who you are and the grace that you have showed us, Lord. Be with us today. Be with us this afternoon. In your son's name, amen.